Welcome to the Evolve Mindset. My name is Chelsea Browse, but most know me online as Chelsbra. I'm an awakening mentor and somatic sexologist who's passionate about the continuous evolution of consciousness. If you're looking to evolve your sex life, career, relationships, finances, or health, then it begins with your mindset and this podcast is for you. My goal is to use this container to provide the tools, knowledge, and insights to further your potential and evolution. I know we're going to have so much fun together, so thank you so much for pressing play and let's evolve. Hey lovelies, I am so excited to be able to introduce Stephanie J as our first speaker today. Um, I consider her a, a dear friend and I just always have the most nourishing conversations with her. Today's episode, we actually speak on trauma. Um, how it affects people in the world, specifically with sexual abuse and addiction in relationships. We dive deep into our own personal experiences and wow, are they impactful. Stephanie J, she's a certified somatic sexologist, breathworker, classical tantra priestess, and life coach. Using her academic background in psychology with new age bodywork and ancient spiritual principles, Stephanie leads her clients to whole body embodied success based on their unique pleasure principles. Deeply focused on enlightening sexuality for higher spiritual career and life performance, Stephanie has a unique way of turning so-called negative triggers into the gold that sets you free. Earning her the title from her students as the erotic alchemist can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation. Thank you and sit tight. Thank you so much, Steph. Um, I'm so honored that you were to come on and accepted to be my first speaker on the Evolve Mindset podcast, my very first speaker. So um, I honestly think this is, um, it is ideal for me to have you on my first speaker just because you've been such a, a key player in my own awakening and my own mindset evolve, evolve, evolving. <laughs> Um, you're just a pivotal person that I just think of when I actually like reflect on where, how far I've come now. So thank you so much. I express so much gratitude to you and, um, yeah, let's, let's get going. So I really want to get into, um, where you are now. Uh, you are a somatic sexologist. Now, I don't think a lot of people actually would know what that is. Do you care to share what that is? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Um, and before I dive into it, thank you for sharing that. It really touches my heart that I've had such an important part in your journey. Um, I don't take that lightly. So thank you. Thank you. That really touches my soul. Um, somatic sexology. Yeah. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot too. <laughs> yeah. They're like a somatic, what is somatic and sexology? Like, are you a prostitute? No. Are you a stripper? No. Okay. So like, what are you? Um, Cause we have this like really interesting view of people that are in the sexuality space mm -hmm. as like, you're either entertainment or you're a sex worker, which in some worlds is also considered entertainment. And we've really lost the ability to look at things as like sexual education, sexual intelligence, sexual development, um, and these are keywords that you'll hear me throw around a lot. You'll hear Victoria at the Institute throw around a lot, but you know, people really just don't know what somatic sexology is. So to really, really break down the core of the word somatic, literally just meaning body, like soma is the word body. So somatic would be of body and then, um, sexology. So the study of sex. So literally a body that is the study of sex or a sexual study of the body. So anything, somatic body work would be things like breath work, massage, yoga. All of those are considered somatic body work-based practices. We just work specifically in the region of sexuality, which makes us a somatic sexologist instead of a somatic breath worker, as an example. Totally. Yeah, I'm, I hope our listeners can take a lot away from that because there's a lot of little pieces like the word somatic. Um, I throw that around a lot, too. And everyone's like, what? It's just like a, such a foreign word that you don't hear every day. So totally. thank Yeah. So thank you so much for breaking that down. I feel like a lot of people take away from that. Um, and I do want to like highlight too, like kind of like 
how you've evolved through this journey to where you are now. Um, do you care to share like how, I guess um, what I'm trying to say is if we look back to our own spiritual journeys, um, we all have, so for you, for me, is my, my pivotal person in my life. Like, do you have mm. someone that you can reflect on uh, who you can actually share was your pivotal person? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I didn't have like, until I was pretty far down my journey, I didn't have one specific person. And I think the reason for that was because the community that I surrounded myself with was not a community that followed any type of spirituality. I definitely broke out of that community. And so when I started, there wasn't, yeah, there really wasn't one person in my core group or even in my ancillary group that became the person that I got to go to or that I got to build a relationship with. I believe so much in the power of the five people that you spend the most time with or who defines your reality. And when I went through my rock bottom moment and I realized I needed to change my reality, I realized that the the mindsets that I was spending the most time with weren't serving me anymore, but I didn't yet have any ability to like step into new mindsets or even an idea of what those mindsets should be. So I honestly dumped myself into podcasts. That was who my five mm. people a day were. <laughs> um, yeah, it was all podcasts. So, you know, people like Catherine Zenkina, Manifestation Babe, um, James Wedmore, Mind Your Business Podcast, Rick Castillo. Um, so it was all about like manifest manifestation, which really is what was my gateway drug into spirituality, I like to joke, um, as well as the mindset work, because I realized that I just needed to do some work on my brain. I needed to make it a happier place because while coming out of my rock bottom moment, it was not a happy, safe space for me to be living. And that really got me into spirituality, kind of got me into the journey. And from there, I started to get these almost like micro experiences with people in the, in the Winnipeg community. So actually who is now my partner, um, but was not at the time seeing was talking a lot about meditation. And I had the opportunity to connect with him about meditation and about his spiritual journey and kind of thought he was interesting, but did never really like deeply connected with him until we started dating. And then, um, I also just had a lot of just random people that would pop into my life. I had a Reiki healer who showed up in my life out of nowhere and ended up really being pretty pivotal. And she gave me a deck, my first deck of tarot cards, which got me into tarot. And I just had like a lot of, but then I never saw her again (laughs) was the weird thing. That's super cool. Yeah. And that's, that's how they just like pop up for one little thing in our life. And then they just kind of like fade into the darkness again. (laughs) And here I am, here's your tarot card. It's going to affect your whole entire life. (laughs) Yeah. And then I literally haven't seen her since the day she gave me the tarot cards. I have not seen her since she like changed her phone number. She's not on Facebook. She moved to BC. When I moved to BC, I tried to find her. And I mean, it's a big province, obviously. Yeah. No clue. Haven't seen her since she could be on a different planet for all I know, or a different like timeline or something. No doubt. That's Very so strange. cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's so neat. And that I, I there's a few points I want to dive deep into there. Um, but one thing that's kind of like ringing bells for me is that rock bottom moment. I feel like we all have that in our life that just really just like shakes our core. Like it just rattles our heart, our soul, everything. It just really tells us like, Hey, wake the fuck up. It's time to make a change. Do you mind sharing what that yeah. rock bottom moment was for you? Yeah. So it was a, it was a pretty big one for me. And, um, I guess to back up a little bit and give you a little bit of context of what led up to my rock bottom moment. Mm. Um, I was a child that was raised not quite in poverty, but definitely in a lower income stream. My parents were working multiple jobs to keep food on the table. I basically never saw them. Nobody in my family had a university education, Nobody in my family made even over $50,000, even in my extended family, never mind anything higher than that. Um, that would have been like $50,000 would be luxury for anybody in my family, like my sister, my parents, any of my extended family. Um, so we were living pretty close to the, pretty close to poverty, especially with all the debt that we had, like we were selling things to put food on the table to put it in perspective, um, for a lot of my life. And Uh, being raised in that environment, I was raised thinking like, okay, like I've got to get 
this dream. I've got to earn the dream that I've been fed, that everybody's been fed, which is, you know, like a good corporate job with a stable salary and, um, you know, the fancy house and the fancy car and the fancy fiance and the things that were all raised from Disney movies to believe that we Mm. should want. Um, and from, you know, pop culture and, and, um, magazines, like the number of times I read Cosmo as a kid is ridiculous. So I had this idea of what a successful life looked at, like in my mind and was blessed with the drive to achieve it. And before I hit like 30, actually really when I was even in my late twenties, I hit all of it. I had like just ground myself. I was on several board of directors. I was managing, um, I was very high level in dodgeball. So I was playing like semi-national level dodgeball. Um, I had the fancy fiance who everybody called a dreamboat. We had the two fur babies. We had the fancy car. We had the condo that was like three stories and 1200 square feet that everyone loved to have parties at. Um, you know, I had this amazing corporate six figure job, but it allowed me to travel all over the world. And I was living the dream. I was at that point, yeah, 27 and totally living the dream on the outside. And on the inside, I really, truly felt like I was living the dream as well. But you know how you sometimes have that like little inkling of "Mm, this isn't quite it, or there's something else. And you just don't listen to it because everything on the outside is so good. Totally. And so I was in that state. Yeah, I was in that state for mm, about a year of just being like on the outside living high life, but like not really feeling like maybe there was something else and just filling my cup with like more awards and more board of director positions and and that kind of thing instead of like looking at what the emptiness was. And that ended up coming to a screeching halt when um, something really interesting happened. My partner, my fiance at the time, he would always pick me up at the airport every time I got home from a work trip, he would pick me up from the airport. And one day on a trip, he just didn't show up. And that was very strange. He would always be there with flowers and a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And he just wasn't there. And he was unreachable by phone. And it was really quite strange. So I take a cab home, like pretty concerned, naturally. And I come home to find him basically ODing on my kitchen floor. And I realized in that moment, or it became clear in that moment, that I had been willfully ignoring a very severe uh, cocaine addiction. And I had seen, like, there's no way that you don't actually see these things, but we don't want to see them, right? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, my whole life kind of fell because it occurred to me, like, he hadn't been at work for six days, we had, he had drained all of the money out of our wedding bank account. He had been smoking like five to six packs a day. He had sores all over the inside of his mouth from the way he'd been using. He had cuts and scrapes and bruises all over his legs because he literally couldn't walk. He was shivering and vomiting at the same time. Like it was a wild experience to come home to. And in that moment, you realize, oh my gosh, I've seen this. I've been watching it happen. And I haven't been willing to, to admit it to myself. And everything started to fall around me. And it's like the, the the walls of the illusion. It's almost like, you know, when you see Inception, we watched Inception the other mm-hmm. day. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but like yeah. the dream <laughs> starts to destabilize, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was essentially what started to happen to me. The dream started to destabilize, but I wasn't ready to let it go yet. So where that should have probably been my rock bottom moment, what I actually did was go into fix it mode. There was no way that my ego would allow me to admit to the outside world that I was marrying a cocaine addict who didn't show up to work. And like, what does that mean about me? And that means he's got to be like really depressed and maybe I'm a bad partner. And so like my ego just went wild. Like I have constructed this beautiful glass house. I have broken all the odds. I'm the first person that in my family that went to university. I'm the first person to make six figures. Like I was doubling both my parents combined in salary by the time I was 23. And I worked really fucking hard for that. And I, there was no way I was going to let some little inconvenience of a of an addiction of my mm-hmm. beloved partner get in the way of that, right? Um, so I went into fix-it mode, and I did all of the things that I knew would would control the situation. And that meant, you know, like putting him in a car and like driving him to talk to his boss and admit that he had an addiction because that meant that legally they could not fire him for not showing up to work because he now had a mental health issue and driving him to his parents' house so that he would have to come clean to his parents. 
and, you know, making calls to people in government to like get him slid into rehab when technically there was a nine month waiting period and really calling in a ton of favors so that I could feel like I was fixing a problem. And never once did I stop to ask him if he cared to be fixed or if he even felt like he was broken. And we spent two years in that state of me expending every piece of sanity that I had, every piece of energy that I had, pushing off the wedding, lying to everybody around me about why the wedding was being pushed off, um, trying to financially support his addiction and our wedding and him not working and me being the only one working while not traveling for work anymore because every time I traveled, he would relapse. And we spent this these two years together with me just really trying to like, every time the wall would start to crumble, just throwing another like poster over it and being like, no guys, it's fine. Don't worry. This section, <laughs> this is fine. Everything's fine. It's like the that perfect gift. got the dog. Yep. This is yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. And the flames are just like yep. blowing up everywhere. And my, my legitimate rock bottom moment happened after putting myself through that for two, two full years. And like the emotional abuse that came not intentionally from him, um, but onto me because of that, because he didn't want to change. He didn't want to be forced like this. And when you take an addict that doesn't want to change, which is totally his right, and you try to force him to go through rehab over and over and over again, and you make his addiction really wrong, well, he turns into a nasty person naturally, mm. right? Like it's understandable. Yeah. And so that that was a really tough two years. And there was one day we were three months out from the wedding and I was going on my first work trip for two years. I was leaving him alone by himself for the first time in two years. And I had this, you know, a little bit of a come to Jesus moment with him where I sat him down and I said, look, I don't care if you have to like put yourself in jail for the next three days. I don't care if you have to chain yourself to a bed. I don't care if you go stay with a friend or your parents or you leave the city. Like I literally don't care at this point. Um, but I need to know that I can leave the city without you and you won't relapse. So you'll notice there's a lot of I statements in there that wasn't mm -hmm. serving him, wasn't serving the relationship. It was mm -hmm. I, 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 I need to protect my identity, my ego identity. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it's irritating now looking back that I behave that way. It's a little bit irritating to me because being a psychology major too, I know that it doesn't work that way. I know that you, as soon as you give an ultimatum in relationship you've lost. <laughs> totally. Totally. So I knew it wasn't going to work, but I, uh, it's funny you know, how it's funny how we react when we feel like everything's falling apart around us. We kind of just like all of our beliefs, um, everything that we stood for just kind of just no, who cares? You know, all bets are off. Let's just do, do whatever we can to fix it. Yeah. I was in straight up survival mode, a thousand percent survival yeah. mode. And, uh, and that's okay. That's happens. And this was the lesson that I needed to learn that he and I needed exactly. to learn. And it was our karma a thousand percent to go through this journey together. And, uh, naturally, of course I gave him that ultimatum, got on the plane. And of course, you know, the second I was on the plane, there was cocaine going up his nose naturally because he was free from the person that was stopping him from using. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was it for me. I was, that was it deals off. You know, I canceled the wedding, like literally the day I got home. But what was interesting about that was that then all of a sudden I was in this like tiny little square box of an apartment that was, you know, 400 square feet that I could barely afford because all of our debt, well, all of my loans and everything had been run up by his cocaine use. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Um, so even enough that my six figure salary, I was, I basically broke. I had no money to my name. I was literally eating like craft dinner every single day because that was all I could afford. Um, I had to now go to my friends and tell them that I had been lying to them for two years. I now had to go to the wedding party and tell them I had been lying to them for two years. I had to go to my, my family and tell them that I had been lying to them for two years. And it basically ripped away all of the structures in that moment, even though that decision I knew was the decision I needed to make. Everything fell apart. I lost my dream fiance. I lost my dream condo. Thankfully, I didn't lose my job, although I probably should have because I fell into a very deep depression and was not showing up. So thankfully, my boss was really patient with me. Um, any other boss probably would have fired me and I probably would have lost that too, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I just, I lost everything. You know, other than the clothes on my back and even a lot of that, I had to sell just to get by. 
and uh, a lot of my friends I lost in because they became the social story of like Steph's blaming that this guy has an addict, an addiction issue, which obviously he socially couldn't tolerate. So he was telling people that I'd been sleeping with my boss. Mm. So there was a big social divide there as well. Um, and so, yeah, that was really, that was really tough. I went through deep, deep depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety disorder. And I spent three months in the depths of a darkness that I wouldn't wish on any other soul in the world. And at some point, thank goodness, I woke up one day and said, okay, this sucks, but I did everything right. I did everything I was told to do. And if it can get taken away from me that easily, then this must not be it. There has to be something else about this world. There has to be some other purpose than just the stuff and the people and the money, because look how quickly all of that can evaporate, but I'm still here. And that got me to start looking into, okay, well then like, what is that thing? Mm. What a beautiful message that came through for you. Mm. Totally awesome. There's, see, this is another wonderful thing I love about the universe. They just attract so many people into your life that just, that you relate to and you just have such similar stories. Um, uh, Where do I begin? Oh my goodness. So I don't know if you're aware. I think I've shared with you actually multiple times. Uh, you, you are aware. Let's just say that. Um, I've had back-to-back abusive relationships. And the one that you described now is one that like was a huge impact on my life too. It wasn't necessarily my rock bottom part mo- moment because I've had many of them. I just took me a while to learn my lesson. <laughs> There's a few. So yeah. So I also dated someone um, that had a, a really horrible addiction and many occasions uh, I'd wake up and like my TV, I I could hear him literally closing my apartment door, my shitty apartment. I didn't have a lot of money at all. And our shitty TV, just those ugly box TVs, he's taking it, he sold it, anything worth of money in my home, like like, from my makeup to these uh, like moccasins that I had that like were just, I don't know, they were expensive at the time. I don't know. It was the only expensive thing I had sold everything gone for drugs. And my bank account drained. Like I totally can resonate with all that story. And it's funny too, cause I was in a city, um, that I had to know anyone cause I moved to a different city with him, with this, this person. And I just had so much pride to, to turn back home and admit that admit, basically admit defeat and failure to my friends and family that I left home. I went to this city and, um, I'm with an addict and there's just all that ego, right? Just, you just didn't want to turn around. You wanted to believe that you could fix it. And uh, the amount of ultimatums that I gave this, this person to, to actually fix themselves that, you know, I'll, I'll stay with you. You know, we'll, we'll get through this addiction. Just, just, you have to quit. Like the amount of times, just like you, it was two year relationship also of just, just addiction fighting. Um, mm-hmm. eventually, eventually the, the relationship turned abusive and because of all the repressing that he's having to do more, more than likely pushed on me. Obviously it's not all my fault. I don't blame myself entirely. There's just a many lessons that I can see on myself. And wow, it's just crazy that, that addiction the power it has on people, every single person is affected in that life. Um, I'm so blessed to be out of that. And you're also, I'm so grateful that you've gotten rid of that relationship too. Um, yeah, like addiction is such a strong trauma. I have to admit to say that is a bit of a trauma for me just because that was such a huge relationship with this partner. Um, we were nearing the end of our relationship on like, actually it should have ended a, like years prior. But at this point in time, his addiction was so strong. I didn't even recognize him anymore. And I was coming to the point where I was threatening that I was going to leave him if he didn't quit his drug addiction. Um, and I would continuously threaten him. And every time I threatened him, he, he would get quite violent and like, you're not leaving me. And it was literally in a moment where, he would try to like bound me. And there was a situation where he actually, uh, sorry to listeners, but this will be quite graphic, um, and triggering. So just it's a little more <laughs> preparing you all. <laughs> um, he, uh, bound me with my arms behind my back with duct tape and he bound them to my legs in a very, just like 
I don't even know how to describe it to the listeners, but kind of like a hog tie almost. Um, and he took a needle, a clean needle, and he actually stabbed me in the arm. And his motive for that, with drugs in it, um, was for him to show me his reason as to why he was like why he was choosing the drugs in his life. Um, and in that moment, he's describing to me, he's like, this is, this is why I do this. And you need to know why I can't quit. And then from there, he, um, put me on the bed and took my, my pants off and he brought himself onto my ass to, to kind of like rub and grope his growing on me. Now he didn't penetrate. And (laughs) whenever time I think back to this moment, the amount of compassion I have for him because of what he told me during this moment he told me the reason why he would do drugs and all this was to obviously escape his reality but when he was I think he said when he was five or six years old this is what a man did to him while his mother was in the next room shit-faced drunk like incoherent and so he proceeded to just kind of like bump his his self to me just kind of to make the motion that he was raped um, and that was just him reenacting the scenario and displaying to me <laughs> why he chose to chose the drugs and why he couldn't quit the drugs. And in that moment, like I'm bawling, I'm just, like, I'm screaming, like, please don't, don't like, cause I didn't want a, a needle in my arm. Like that was a huge fear of mine. Oh my God. And yes, it happened. <sighs> um, but, um, the amount of compassion I had for him was just like, I understood the addiction which was yeah. just like, then I look and, you know, like it's like these people, like they're escaping and mm-hmm. I completely understand, but it is debilitating for so many people too. Oh my goodness. Um, and to, to continue with that, he proceeded to leave because I know the amount of shame and guilt he felt after that. Oh my goodness. Cause he has such an amazing heart. Um, so anyways, he left and he actually sent this girl that I knew at the time to come and console me and be my, my be by my side. So I talked to her and whatever, I'm crying, whatever. Da, da, da. And um, he eventually that later that day, he actually got picked up by the police for whatever other reason, because he's on this big drug binge. Who knows what happened? And then he went to jail and he called me and I told him, you know what? I have to leave. Like, this is. I don't feel safe. Um, cause at that point that was my rock bottom in that relationship to like, okay, I need to go. Cause who knows where this is going to go next? Like, this is horrible. I don't want to be in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that. And I left him. Um, although on the phone and this is, this is also, again, I'm sorry, everyone, this is a very dramatic story. <laughs> um, on the phone, he threatened me that if I, if I leave him, he will kill himself. And, you know, like, I feel like people say that a lot in many different, okay, like different situations, especially in relationships like that. I, you know, you see it on TV and like, whatever. So I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like I can't, da, 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 da. So I left him and I actually left the province that we were in. And, um, I got a phone call two days later and I heard that he overdosed in a jail cell. And, um, that hit me hard for a numerous, numerous years, but um, there was something actually someone told me and that actually like really pulled me out of it. And it's, it's so like, like you mentioned before, we have like your, your woman with the tarot cards, she just kind of poofed in when you needed her and kind of like left and then had left this, like this lasting, um, impression on you. And, um, so yeah, anyways, this, this girl popped in that I grew up with, um, as like childhood and she, we were just talking on Facebook and we literally talked for like three days and that was it. And I didn't, I still to this day have not talked to her so random, but she said something to me when I shared that story with her, cause it was really fresh at the time when she spoke to me and she's like, you know, um, anyone that kills themselves. Cause I was blaming myself and mm-hmm. his entire family, I think to this day, probably blame me and they, cause just because of the, 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 the Kate, like the, um, the series of events of how it happened. Um, she said to me that anyone that decides to kill himself or commit suicide, um, they do, they don't do it for one reason. They do it for 
multiple reasons. And that hit home for me. So I was like, oh my God, like you're absolutely right. Um, so that really helped me. And then that's just, it's just neat because she was like a really key person in my life and just kind of tied around in that story. Um, yeah, uh, that was one of the many rock bottoms I've had. <laughs> Mm. And just, just hearing your story about your fiance and all the addiction that's encased around it. Um, it really hits home for me. So thank you very much for sharing that. I appreciate that. Thank yeah. And thank you for sharing your story and being so, um, vulnerable because that that's an intense story to share. It is, it is, it is. And then even like saying, I'm like, Oh, okay. Like it's a story I've lived with. Um, and it's a part of me. Um, I've accepted it. I've come to forgiveness for all pieces and parts of it for myself and everyone involved, like everyone that's blamed me, da, 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 da. it's to bed. And it's, it's, I've now accepted it's a part of me. But then when I know, when I say it, how triggering it can be, it's like, Oh my God, like this is like pretty impactful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Required a lot of healing, um, necessary healing though. So, yeah. yeah. And what I think is so interesting about that is, you know, these things come and I haven't yet figured out how this is going to show up in my life, but I believe that these reasons come to us and they touch our hearts. And some people might say that they scar our hearts. I believe that they make our hearts stronger. It's not a scar. It's more muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, But they happen to us for a reason. And there's one thing that I have learned in trying to assist him in his addiction story is that there's always a reason there's always a coping mechanism. It's not an addiction issue. We don't have an an addiction issue in North America. Mm -hmm. We have a coping mechanism issue in North America. We have people that have lives that have experienced incredible trauma that maybe they don't even fully remember. Exactly. That is just driving the bus. And we don't have any tools to help them deal with it. We don't have we don't have anything. We just expect them to walk along and pretend everything's fine. We have families that don't know how to support them. We have a health system that doesn't know how to support them. We have mental health stigma. We have addiction stigma. And nine times out of 10, what I've learned being in this space is that it comes down to sexual trauma, almost Mm -hmm. always childhood sexual trauma. I totally agree with that. Like the amount of stories I've heard just from people that I've come into contact with that have drug addiction, that have anger issues, that have, um, that abuse their, their lovers, like just all like the, the storybook of some type of abuse has stemmed from sexual abuse. Um, and it, it affects like, oh my goodness, I don't even know where to go with that, but you're, you're absolutely right with that. Like, uh, like every one of my abusive partners were sexually abused as, as like a young boy, every single one of them. Um, and there's like, and that's, it it does make it easier to have that compassion for them. Once you understand where they came from, their childhood, um, the abuse that they endure, like, I, it's like, now I see you, I see, I see where that anger and that, and that hurt where I can see where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that can be so challenging too. I mean, that was something I had to journey a lot and it was part of the reason why I stayed for two years after developing or realizing there was this addiction issue, I stayed for two years because yeah, I could see it so clearly. There's this human that I love and he uses because he hates himself. He hates what he's been through in his life Mm. and everyone in his family blames him. Everyone in his family sees him as a failure because of his addiction. And nobody looks at why he has an addiction in the first place. Nobody gets curious compassionate or loving for him all they do is label him and throw him out the window and then they wonder why he doesn't want to stop and that drives me bananas (laughs) and it was yes crazy (laughs) yes I I totally again and I feel that with you too because like the um, the individual um that I shared that that story with um his mother she would never admit to what happened and she was in the next room when it happened uh, he was in and out of foster homes. Like she acted like she was in his life the whole time. And he had six other siblings, I think probably three quarters of them, pretty much nearly all of them, they all endured some type of sexual abuse. And it's just like the, the parent figures ignore it. The, any, any of the other adult figures in their life ignore it. Um, and that just makes it worse for them. Like all they want to do is be seen and be heard and just 
just be recognized that that, ha- that happened to them. And th- this drug addiction, I feel like that's just what they turned for one to escape the pain, to escape all that abandonment, to, to escape all those horrible, traumatic feelings that those memories that they're remembering and embodying all the time. Um, but they also just want the attention of their, their parent figure at the same time. Totally. Yeah. They want to feel loved. Right. And, and that can make the decision of where your boundaries are and, and what you choose to do. And I think, especially when people go on a spiritual journey, this line can get even more blurred because your heart becomes so big and your empathy and your compassion becomes so big mm. that how do you choose to leave? Right. Like what, what's the breaking point where you decide my needs are more important than your needs when you're on a spiritual journey and your empathy is so huge. It can be really, really tough. And the line is different for everybody, but at some point for me where that line existed was I realized that he actually didn't desire to change. And I was the one that was needing that of him. And I wasn't in it for him. I was in it for me right? Like that, I made that realization that like my pushing him to change wasn't for his best interest. It actually clearly wasn't in his best interest. Being an addict was at that point in his life in his best interest because he didn't have the capacity to do the work, to uncover it, to do the family stuff. And I was trying to push him uphill, like a boulder uphill through this process that he was super unavailable for. And that was so not compassionate of me and not Mm -hmm. centered of me. And as soon as I was able to step back and be like, holy hell, like, look at this was all about me the whole time. I was, I had this like, oh, I see you and I love you more than anybody else does. And therefore I want you to change. I will love you until you change. But is that really love? You know? Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, Yeah. That's awesome. And with that realization, um, that clearly was your rock bottom moment. So once you hit that moment in your life and you started to realize all these things, what did you notice shifted? Was there any um, moves you made thereafter? Is there light under the tunnel? Like what direction did you take after that? Yeah, so uh, manifestation became kind of my thing, right? I dove into podcasts. I didn't have anyone in my awareness that, that was in alignment with this new work that I wanted to do. And, you know, they were all partying and and they they just weren't in alignment with, with the new reality I wanted to create. And they had no idea what I was going through because a lot of them were still, I would say, recreational partiers. A lot of them were not having the corporate drive that I wanted. Like I was kind of already the black sheep to begin with. So I really just turned to podcasts. And as I kind of joked earlier, you know, manifestation became my gateway drug because it had that nice little balance of spirituality fused with like, ego materialism, right? Like I can use spirituality to get the things that I lost. And so that was kind of my beginner step into this world of spirituality. And because I really, you know, I dive in everything I do, I dive in both feet, no looking. And um, that really served me in this case, because all like, I literally listened to podcasts while I fell asleep. It was the first thing I turned on when I woke up, I just dumped new information into my brain at a level that Like, I couldn't even tell you all the stuff I I watched or listened to, but when you listen to it that much, it gets into the subconscious mind. And because of that, I, A, the light at the end of the tunnel definitely squeezed in. And I started to notice a lot of shifts in my reality that I started to notice. And it's almost like, you know, when you start going to the gym, you notice that you change before other people notice. Like, you'll start to notice a muscle popping Mm -hmm. before anyone else really sees it. And basically the same thing happened to me. I started to notice things were magnetizing into my awareness. New people were coming in. I was walking different. My, uh, my stress levels were different. The way I thought about myself was different. So I started to see all that stuff internally. And that really convinced me like, okay, well maybe now I can get into things like crystals or Reiki. Like what's this Reiki thing or massaging or what's this tarot thing over here? What's astrology? Like, let me like play with all the tools um, that are kind of the quote unquote new age tools. When I was about halfway through my journey, let me start playing with those. But I had so much fear around sharing them with other people, even as I was seeing massive success, because I was deeply concerned that I would lose all of my friends because they were in this like really different headspace. And I started to really see very clearly how different I had become in the span of, you know, six months 
how different I had become from them. And, you know, in that time I manifested a $30,000 raise in my corporate job, which was already high salary. I manifested a new dream apartment in downtown that was like walking distance from the new job I manifested. And like, I had all of these material things to show for this work, but I was afraid to admit that I was carrying crystals in my backpack because I was afraid I would be vilified by my friends and family. And the unfortunate thing there is that by the time they actually did start to see me walking around with the sage and the crystals and knowing my human design and all that kind of stuff, once they started to actually see that this is what I was into, yeah, they weren't super pleased about it. I wouldn't say that they vilified me right away, but it was definitely like a, whoa, what are you into? They started to call me a hippie for a while. And um, it definitely started to like pull at the threads of the fabric of those relationships and the more I grew, the faster I accelerated, because once you get into that belief spiral, once you prove to yourself that you can manifest $100, it's like, oh, game on. Let me manifest $1,000. Let me manifest $10,000. Like, it just becomes fun. Life's just a game at that point, right? It's just all about, mm -hmm. ooh, what challenge can I set for myself now? And that was very different than the reality all of my friends were living in. So what was really unique about my journey is I, I really saw very quickly how when I dedicated myself and I leaned in it with that belief field, everything around me changed for the better. And that included releasing some people and situations that weren't any longer for my highest good. Mm, that's awesome. I love that you mentioned manifestation because especially as a gateway drug, because that was totally kind of how I started to slowly lean into all of this too. Um, I'm not sure if you remember or heard of the, the book or the movie, The Secret, so I watched the the Netflix documentary, The Secret, and um, oh, that changed my life. <laughs> um, I actually printed out a little paper million dollar bill or million dollar check in my name just to kind of like get everything going. Hasn't happened yet, but I am still hopeful. It's it's all in the game. <laughs> It'll be I there. Also, just got to believe. Exactly. Um, I also... I created like a, a bit of a superficial list for my current partner, whom I've actually been with now eight years. So I think it kind of worked. <laughs> I um, did like his hair color, his height, his, um, his family, his values. He had a car. Like I had like all these, like this list of things. Cause I was just tired of dating these, these, these same people in my life. So I just like created this person, this individual. And literally two days later, poof, out of nowhere, I've got this new boyfriend. <laughs> it was pretty cool. So like that got me super hooked. Um, and it really, from there too, like for me, it was a lot slower. It seemed like you were able to kind of just like really hit the ball rolling. Like you, you mentioned, you kind of just dive with two feet in, which is really cool. Um, along with the manifestation, I heard you mention human design too. Uh, I've actually just recently started getting into that, which is super interesting um, with the manifestation and the human design when you have the arrows. Like I, I just found out that I'm a specific manifester and at the moment, like I've really been trying to play with that, but that makes a lot of sense from when I first found out about mani manifestation, I didn't do it in a specific way. And that's what I am. I'm a specific manifester. So I have to like literally do down the list and like be very, very specific, which I was with my partner and why it happened so quickly, but it, I didn't really catch on X amount of years ago. So now I'm going to keep trying to do that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you know what that is. So do you know what kind of manifester you are? Yeah, definitely. So I am also a specific manifester and cool. similarly have learned the lesson. And I just discovered that like last week that I'm a specific mm. manifester. So this was new information to me as well. And having been in the manifestation game for quite a while, I mean, I watched the secret when it was out in like, you had to order it in a DVD, like when it came out in what was it like 2006 or 2007, I was in an MLM at the time and selling sex toys. So, you know, the sex gene was in me for a long time, but I was selling sex toys back when I was 19, when that movie came out and I watched it. And at 19, your brain is still so malleable. I was like, Oh my God, of course I can manifest whatever I want. And I made my vision board and I did vision boards with my team. And what was really cool about that experience to pull it back to the specific manifester is that anything that I was very specific about all manifested. But the stuff I was kind of loosey-goosey on in my vision board didn't manifest. Mm. And they were like loose experiences. They're like, you know, a picture of a jungle. But it was like, do I want to go to a jungle? Do I want to be a jungle? Do I want a cat that lived in a jungle? Like, what is the jungle, right? right? There's no clarity there. And it never showed up. 
But like, for example, I had an Eiffel Tower on my um, vision board. And without even realizing this until years later, I actually ended up manifesting a job with a uh, travel agency. And I actually went to Paris eight times over the span of three years because wow. it was on my vision board. And it it's um, just really interesting to see when I was like, I want to go to Paris and I want to have this, I want to look at the Eiffel Tower. That exact picture as the one I had on my vision board, I literally own it. And they're now side by side That's versus, awesome. you know, the fluffy jungle or this like random house that I kind of like, but it's big. So I think I should like it. You know, those things didn't happen. And I think that's one thing, and they don't talk about this in human design, but as far as manifestation is concerned, one thing that I've really learned is understanding where the desire is coming from has mm-hmm. really impacted whether uh, whether or how effectively I can manifest it. So like this massive mansion that's worth like $30 million, that who knows where it is, like my ego wanted that at 19. It was like, yeah, I want to be the person that like lives in this big house, but like really actually that's not what my soul wants. I mean, I'm a digital nomad, right? I don't want to own any property. Never mind this massive like boat anchor of a property somewhere. So it's interesting to see how that has changed. And anytime I've put something on a list that was purely coming from ego and not actually from spirit, it hasn't actually manifested for me. But everything that came from spirit, like for example, the space I'm staying in right now, which is not a mansion, but for sure for North Vancouver, which is one of the most expensive areas to live in in North yep. America. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. And we manifested it in the span of like 48 hours in like an amazing story. And it was exactly what was on my very specific manifestation list. So sometimes there's things that I think are soul aligned and those are the things you go for, but we can get really caught up in like, oh, I want the like Gucci bag, but that's just because somebody else has a Gucci bag. It's not because I actually want it or I want the fancy car, but like, do you actually want the fancy car? Right. So I, I feel like there's a piece there that isn't talked about yet, but is so, so vital to the efficacy of manifesting. Mm, I, I totally agree with that. Cause I, I can speak to you anytime that I have quote unquote manifested and, and I haven't manifested without even fully realizing I have to, and then I connect the dots later. I'm like, Oh my God, I was asking for this. Um, and only time those things have ever happened was when in like, in my soul, it's like, that's something that actually like makes me light up. And I have actually like recently gotten super into plants and I literally keep getting mad, like keep manifesting plants left and right. Like every day I have someone like, Hey, I have a, like a a clipping or like a proper propagation for you. I'm like, Oh my God, thank you so much. And like, I like my soul, like my heart, like is like my whole chest is lit up when someone tells me that, like, I want to cry. I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe you were giving me this. Like, it just makes me so happy. So it's just funny that you mentioned that. Cause as long as you are like, that is something your soul is asking for. You're going to fucking get it. <laughs> I guarantee yep. it anytime. I see. So yeah. That's, that's so, in- I love that you mentioned that because it's, that's happened to me on many occasions. And if anyone is looking to manifest anything in their life, take away that feeling. <laughs> Just yeah. remember you need that feeling. If that's something you're actually wanting to manifest in your life. That's so awesome that you brought that up. Thank you. <laughs> And yes, so you also mentioned the digital nomads and I do want to like highlight to the listeners, like I have totally been watching you, um, ever since we met, uh, which was actually kind of near the beginning of my quote unquote spiritual awakening. Um, I went to a meditation workshop where you, where your partner was hosting and you were with him also. And, um, from there, I just started following you guys and seeing the journey you've been taking on. And now you are digital nomads. Do you care to, to share what that is for you? Yeah, it's such a beautiful, um, a beautiful example of the combination between like, you know, masculine force and planning and feminine flow. And I think if there's anything that this era of being in in and out of lockdowns, depending on where you are in the world right now, and and in and out of new restrictions all the time, it's taught us is, you know, we we convince ourselves in normal life that we have the ability to plan one year, five year, ten years down the road, and the reality is that that's a huge fallacy. You really can't plan that far in advance. Maybe if you're lucky, you get six weeks. And now, especially sometimes we're lucky if we get one week before shit changes again. <laughs> yeah. And our, um, yeah, the, the journey to becoming a digital nomad was such an interesting one for us. So 
essentially what happened and my partner and I, we got together and instantly like sparks flew and we were like creating spiritual businesses left, right and center. And they were selling out. Like we ended up hosting a retreat that we literally birthed within the span of four hours. We were just sitting around having tea one day with his dad over. And we talked about hosting a retreat in Costa Rica and how cool would that be? And this is while we were both still in corporate. Neither of us were known for spiritual practices. I had been doing my manifestation stuff, but I hadn't been really talking to anybody about it yet because I didn't want to be the weird kid that did the crystals and everything that we talked about. <laughs> and you, I just all of a sudden, everything was so in alignment. We just didn't care. And we we're like, we're going to host this retreat. We like found the place, bought it, bought our plane tickets, threw up a website. And this is like such a sign. If there's any entrepreneurs here, guys, it does not need to be hard. It gets to be messy. Ready is a lie. Just throw your shit up there and just do it. Um, and it will be successful. If you put your heart and soul into it, it will be successful. And this was a really great example for us. We got a place that only had 12 spots available. We sold all 12 of them within six weeks. So seeing my partner and I actually had to stay in a different place <laughs> because we sold our own beds to have room for um, attendees to come and attend with us. And with very little effort, like no funnels, no marketing, no paid ads. Like we literally just showed up on lives on Facebook and shared what we were excited about. And coming off of that excitement, like that was rocket fuel to me because I was like, oh my God, I had been feeling so out of alignment in corporate for so long. My spiritual journey really created a lot of cognitive dissonance with being in the tech conglomerate world of the corporate sales executive that I was life that I was living. And I was just hating it. It was making my skin crawl. My soul was screaming. I felt like so much resistance to going into work every day, but it's not easy to replace an upper six figure income. And I had this story of like, I'll never be successful enough to get out of corporate because I've become used to this income level now. And, um, that retreat proved to me that I, it didn't have to be hard. It didn't have to be expensive. I could just show up in my authenticity and I could crush it. And on that rocket fuel, I was like, okay, well, great. Let's leave corporate. <laughs> so I quit corporate a week before the retreat started. Um, and then I'm going to like, I didn't, and you know, the thing is, I didn't even know what I was going to do. I was signed up for the sexuality school. I didn't know if that was going to be my thing. I just knew that I was like, this was enough evidence. It was all I needed to say, like, fuck it to corporate. I'm over this. I can make it work. I trust myself enough to make it work. And so seeing my partner and I decided, okay, well, now that I'm not in corporate, I'll launch some kind of coaching business. We'll figure it out. And when we get back from Costa Rica, we'll make all these plans. And he had always wanted to travel and I had traveled a lot for work. And I always wanted to travel without having to go to like conferences or like justify the ad spend to my employer or whatever. And so we're like, yeah, we'll be digital nomads. We had it all planned out. We knew exactly where we were going to go. We had like a whole year of travel basically figured out. And then while we were in Costa Rica on this beautiful three-week trip, not connected to the media, not connected to the news, like not connected to anything because we were really focusing on serving our retreat attendees, COVID hit <laughs> and the world shut down. And all of a sudden we're flying home from Costa Rica and it was like coming home to a zombie apocalypse. It was the strangest mm. thing. That's so funny that actually I'm going to, I have to say this. So um, I'm a big lucid dreamer and I have reoccurring dreams, especially like from when I was a childhood, I would always have the zombie apocalypse dream. And I would just be this hero in the dream as soon as I realize I'm dreaming and just crush and just destroy zombies my entire dream. It was so much fun. <laughs> Such a well, good it's time. funny you mentioned that too, because I actually literally, the reason zombies are on my mind is because I literally had a zombie apocalypse dream like two days ago. Love uh, it. Yeah. So I don't know, something about wanting to save the world and yes, <laughs> hearts of gold, right? Hearts of gold. That's yes, <laughs> totally. That's, that's uh, so cool that um, I do actually remember seeing you guys posting about that, the retreat you guys were doing. And yeah, I was so pumped for you guys. Like I, I, at that point, I hardly knew you guys. And I was like, wow, this is so cool that they're doing that. I've never seen anyone do this in Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah. Small town Winnipeg. People don't do that kind of thing very often, right? No. So, yeah. No, it's, uh, very cool. Very cool. It was a cool experience for us. A very cool experience. And we'll have another retreat eventually when retreats are a thing that happens again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, that is awesome. So you also mentioned the Institute. So it's Institute of New Paradigm Intimacy. Um, I'm actually currently studying at and I'm nearly graduated and you are currently now um, 
being a lead facilitator, which has been um, an honor actually being in the Institute with you. Do you care to speak on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, and this is again, another example, we've touched on it many times of like, you know, manifestation and not trying Mm. to like white knuckle the, the, the planning and the how, and this is again, another amazing example of it. Um, when I started, I was a student at the Institute, as you know, that was what I did when we got back from Costa Rica, shit hit the fan. There was no more retreat business that we were going to be able to run. So I'm like, okay, I'll dive hundred percent into sexuality and, uh, took the six month course, went through a massive transformation on my own because this course was completely revolutionary in the way I had to learn. I was so good at being the like class A or, you know, A plus typical learning student that takes all the perfect notes and learns diligently through the brain. And now all of a sudden I was being asked to learn through transmission and learn through the heart. And I like couldn't retain information and I was questioning myself and I had so much resistance and I was being asked to self-pleasure. And I was like, what do you, I got to masturbate every day. Like what? Like I used to sell sex toys, <laughs> but this is a lot for me. Like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. And I mean, we know now that self-pleasure is not the same thing as masturbation, but when I first started, I was like, what the fuck is going on? What did I sign myself up Mm -hmm. for? And it was, it was a hard course. I was like way harder than my university degree. My university degree took a long time, but it was never hard. Even though I was, you know, pre-med for a while, it was never hard. Um, this course was hard. It was hard because it was totally a different way of learning. And I got really caught up in my head about my inability to, to lead in this container. And while I was really caught up in my head about my inability to lead, I started having dreams of myself and Victoria, who runs the Institute. That's it's her baby. And the person who was facilitating my program, her name's Lauren Renee. And the three of us would, would be like saving the world, not from a zombie apocalypse, but saving the world from sexuality. Because as soon as you start taking this program, and we've kind of alluded to this already, but you start to realize like all of the world's problems, all I would venture to say a solid 80 to 90% of them are based in a core wound around sexuality, mm-hmm. are based in some kind of sexual trauma in a person or a belief system that makes desiring something bad. Like you can tie a lot of the world's problems to sex and and a misunderstanding of how sex is supposed to operate in our lives and how we've changed it and monetized it while also pushing it into the shadows. Like it's crazy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I started to really see that and feel it and unearth my own, my own sexual trauma. And so even though I had this story that I was like doing a really bad job at the Institute, I was having these dreams that should were like my hints from my spirit of like, no, you're fine. No, you're fine. We're like Victoria Lord and I were like taking over the world together. And we were like changing the way the world sees sexuality and like bringing it back into the medicine for the people that it was always meant to be instead of this like thing that you pay for to get one off quickly. And, um, I think that started to show through. So Victoria actually shoulder tapped me, um, about three quarters of the way through the course and asked me if I would be interested in, helping them lead the next round. And I was floored. I was like, me? Are you sure? I had so much worthiness issues coming up. But what's cool about that is even though I had a lot of worthiness issues about the Institute coming up, at the same time, I had worked so hard on my mindset for three years at this point. And I knew, and I had all this evidence from the retreat that whatever I decided to do, I would rock it. So I was able to kind of hold this like cognitive dissonance of having on the right hand, this idea that like, I'm going to fucking crush whatever it is that I launch in this world. And I have no fear of that whatsoever. And B, I really suck at this thing. (laughs) (laughs) But because I was able to hold both of those that I really suck at this thing didn't hold me down. And I knew that I would end up having a massively successful business. And I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but I knew I could just feel it. And that ended up turning into fruition. I mean, opening, working with the Institute at this level opened a lot of doors for me. It also gave me a lot more confidence to be able to sell my one-on-one coaching programs. And from the day that I graduated, which was in July, so six months ago, like in that time span, I made over $50,000. So Mm. I equivalently increased, like I was, I've almost caught up to my corporate salary in half a year, being fresh out of the gate. And I was able to step into this leadership position at the Institute and more importantly, impact a bunch of other women who are going through this journey because I remember how hard it was because I just went through it. It was a really, really beautiful transition. And I see so clearly that had I 
had I stronghold onto like, no, I'm going to do my own group program and no, I'm going to like run just my one-on-one coaching. And I don't want to like work for somebody else again, because I have to journey that. Like, do I want to work for someone else again when I just left corporate and to go through all of that. And because I was able to just like go from the soul of like, does this feel in alignment? I was able to say yes and integrity without um, going against my boundaries or being a people pleaser or saying yes, because I felt like I couldn't benefit from my own business. Um, I was able to say yes authentically and still drive my own business to success, which was a really beautiful balance for me. Mm, yeah, thank you for sharing that story. I, I honestly, I love it just because I've I've seen it kind of on both ends. I'm hearing your side, but I also like saw it from the outside too, watching on social media because you share so much. Um, so I just love hearing your story. <laughs> um, uh, now, where where how would you see yourself today? Um, the digital nomad, the the somatic sexologist. Um, you share your story from the beginning and it feels like up until like, eh, like right when you graduated. Um, so what are you doing now? Yeah. So we are digital nomads. Now we did end up leaving Winnipeg and that was an interesting thing where again, we just had to kind of trust spirit of like, we're going to go when spirit tells us to go, we got the download. It was like, it's time to leave the city, you know, and we had still planned and you know, we had that beautiful sense of naivety. We're like, ah, this COVID thing, it's going to blow over in like six months. It's going to be fine. So we like continue to plan the digital nomad life, just waiting for it to, to just waiting for it to calm down. Obviously it never calmed down, but because we trusted spirit, or at least as of this recording, pardon me, it has not yet calmed down. Um, but because we trusted spirit over the summer, that told us, hey, it's time to go. We actually managed to travel from Winnipeg to Vancouver. We drove and we literally kind of leapfrogged through the provinces as they opened and closed their borders and as they opened and closed their quarantine regulations. So we were able to enjoy like a really nice summer without breaking any rules, without, you know, putting anybody at risk because the provinces were like, oh, everything's fine. We'll open up a little bit again. And that was when we we kind of hopped to the next province mm-hmm. and then the next province would open and then the next province would open. So we kind of just like, yeah, played leapfrog all the way over to Vancouver. Um, we've been in Vancouver since September 1st. And then just last week received the download that ta-da, it's time to go again. <laughs> <laughs> so we're actually moving to Mexico next and very excited. We'll be down there in uh, in two weeks officially as of today. And I'm really excited for some sun and Mm. just like sand and maybe some amplified outdoor music. We'll see. But it's been really cool to also witness that, you know, as we've been moving and and like flowing with that, also to see the business flow. And, you know, CN's business and my partner's business has really taken off. Mine has taken off. I've got group programs coming out now. I've got master classes coming out now. So I really had the luxury of selling out all of my one-on-one spots right out of the gates as we discussed. And then from September till now, I kind of got to cruise. I got to figure out what was my energetic capacity and life essentially got to catch up with me. I had done so much mindset work for so long that I got to watch the world catch up to what I believed in my mind it was. And then I got to chill with it being plateaued for a little while, which was kind of like November, December. And then as soon as we got comfortable with that plateau, it was like, boom, time to go again. That was when my goals, as far as, you know, income about, um, for next year or concern. That was when all my programs started downloading. Uh, so really allowing it to flow and it, and not like, it was so important for me to not get hard on myself in like October. I was like, Oh, I haven't launched anything new. I'm just kind of coasting. Like, what is this? But that's okay. I was creating space so that this next download could come. And I was creating that vibrational resilience so that the resistance I felt in this level wouldn't pull me back down. So I was able to really, really ground in this like reality that I currently am in, which is, you know, lead of the facility um, of the Institute, sold out one-on-one five-figure packages on a regular basis. And, you know, a couple little group programs here and there, I got to ground in that before we moved, before I started trying to launch anything else that was going to create a little bit of resistance. So I feel comfortable there as my reality. Now I'm ready to stretch into, okay, what does a $500,000 a year look like? How can I start like vibrationally aligning with that in one year? How can I start involving myself more with the Institute? What, how can I serve my clients more? Because other than the money, like I just want to eradicate all the sexual trauma that's on the planet. What does that look like? How do I start leaning into that more? So that's mm-hmm. really been the genesis that I've been in for the last few weeks, I would say. 
Mm, what a beautiful evolution from start to finish. I, I, I really express my gratitude again. Just thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you paint such a, like, a great picture when you actually reflected on it. So I actually can't wait to even just listen back on the podcast and do all the editing. (laughs) (laughs) Such a great journey. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So thank you again so much, Steph. I I really appreciate you for being my first speaker on the Evolved Mindset podcast. Um, Thank you. And I I guess my last thing for me to ask you is how can people reach out to you um, if they're looking to just interact, work with you, um, just to follow you along? Do you care to share all your your, uh, social medias? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm active in a lot of different places right now, um, but the two easiest ways to find me, and then you can kind of find me on your socials of choice because we're on TikTok and Clubhouse and YouTube and obviously Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. That's like the, I'm on basically everything other than Twitter and Snapchat. Draw the line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not, I'm not doing the Twitter thing. I don't know why it just doesn't resonate. never really has. So, um, but yeah, the easiest way to find me, and then you can kind of expand on the socials from there is either Instagram or my website. They're both the same, which makes it nice and easy. So my website is stephaniej.com. So S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-J-A-I-E.com. And my Instagram handle is the same thing, at Stephanie J. You can find me in both of those places. It's actually the same handle on almost every social anyways, but those two places are kind of my my footholds in the social world. If you're wanting really unique um, first entry content, those are the two places that you'll want to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Steph. Um, Really appreciate you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me with today's episode. If you love what you heard, be sure to share it with me by leaving a review on your listening platform so I can keep the goodness coming your way. If you aren't already following me on social media, you can interact with me and enjoy daily inspiration on Instagram at Chelsbra or visiting my website for one-to-one mentoring at chelsbra.com. I love you and appreciate you so much and can't wait to connect again in the next episode. Until then, turn your magic on, loves, and keep evolving.